Now, Lord, once again, I am bearing with an affliction that in some ways is an affliction to this whole congregation because of my inability to speak words clearly, to pronounce certain consonants. Help me, O God, in spite of that, in my weakness and frailty as an old man, grant by the power of the Holy Spirit that we may hear the voice of the Lord Jesus calling us to himself one more time, that we may find rest and peace, direction, encouragement, and hope for the future at the feet of Jesus as we pray in his name. Amen. Now I want us to reflect today as we're in this little mini-series, God and Government. We've looked at God's ideal form of government. We saw that in 1 Samuel, where Samuel tells the people, do not choose to have a strong central government. You need to remain what you are, a loose confederation of tribes with no standing army, and trust the Lord. In other words, God's ideal government was not a monarchy. And when Israel chose a monarchy in 1 Samuel chapter 8, God told Samuel, tell the people, they have not rejected you, Samuel. They have rejected me as their head. Because people could trust God that when trouble came, God would raise up an army amongst his people. And when trouble came, God would take care of them. They didn't need a central government with a standing army. And he warned them, and that sermon is worth listening to, of the dangers that would come. Confiscatory taxation, 1 Samuel 8. Confiscatory taxation. A standing army which would enforce the will of the dictator. A standing army that would enforce the will of the dictator. And so God's people, 1 Samuel 8, rejected God's form of government, which was essentially that God at the top ruled through elders. And that's very significant. Then we looked at tyrants. We considered Nebuchadnezzar. And we saw how they had to resist the t tyranny of Nebuchadnezzar. But in resisting the tyranny of Nebuchadnezzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego lost nothing but the ropes that bound them. They were protected. Who were the people who were killed in Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace? His military officers, the strongest of his military, were burned up in that fiery furnace. But God sent an angel into the fiery furnace who protected Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they, having been thrown into the fiery furnace, were able to walk out without even their clothes smelling like smoke. And then we saw that God will stop at nothing to bring his people to himself. And we saw how God humbled Nebuchadnezzar by visiting him with mental illness that caused him to leave his palace and, and to live like an animal, not knowing whether he's an animal or a man. And how God at the very end there brought Nebuchadnezzar back to sanity. Well, today we want to look at this passage here in terms of verse 3. 
2 Timothy 2.3, Endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. I want to hold my hand there and see a parallel passage that illustrates the principle that Paul has here, which is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, if you will turn back to the left, and that will be on page 1779. Page 1779. And let's look here in verse 32. Page 1779, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 32. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But the married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit, but a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. If we think about it for a moment, what Paul is getting at in 2 Timothy 2 and what he's getting at in 1 Corinthians 7 is he wants us to be free. He wants us to be free to get up and go, to move, to do things for him that we could never do if we have a family. I think about it. If I didn't have a family, I would live here right now. You need a pastor with boots on the ground. You need someone who's here 24-7, seven days a week. So if somebody's sick, he can get up and go and see them. But I have a family. Years ago, I made a decision to marry. I think it's probably the second smartest decision I ever made, considering the fact that she said yes. And I cannot in any way speak against marriage because being married has been for me the most wonderful thing. But the thing that Paul is getting at here is this. First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes the baby carriage. And so, over the course of years, we had five children. We now have 14 grandchildren. And every one of those children has a problem, without exception. And every one of our children-in-law has a problem, without exception, even when they don't know they have a problem. And every one of our 14 grandchildren has a problem. And they often let us know about it. And our two grandchildren-in-law have problems. Now, our first prayer concern every day for Sandy and me is to pray for those children and children-in-law and grandchildren and grandchildren-in-law. But because of those things, I'm bound to where I live. Otherwise, I would love to live here. This is a lovely community, and you need somebody living here. But I'm not free. I have to consider other people 
in my most immediate circle, which is my family. Because family is so important. So what I want us to see in 1 Corinthians 7 is, in verse 35 of 1 Corinthians 7, I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. Undivided devotion to the Lord. You see, if I were a man with no children or grandchildren, I could sell my house, I could move to, you name it, Saudi Arabia, the most oppressive country for Christians in the world. I could move to North Korea. Probably wouldn't last long. I have a good friend who spent a few days in North Korea. Uh, he, is a, he, he was in Boy Scouts with me. He was a youth, and he's a singer in China today of all things. He's not Chinese. He's married to a Chinese lady. And he was able to, to have a nice little vacation in North Korea. What's really going on there? I don't know. I don't want to live there. But what if the Lord said to me, Bob, I want you to go to North Korea. I'm not free to do that because I'm not a free man. When you say, I do, you give up rights. That's something I often tell a couple before they get married. You know that in 1 Corinthians 7, if you turn over to the left, he says, he says in verse 3, 1 Corinthians 7, 3, page 1778, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, likewise the wife to her husband. Look at verse 4. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, and the word alone is not found in the Greek text, but to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him, but to his wife. And so, almost always when I'm doing a wedding, I say, if you're not prepared to become a servant to this person, do not go through with this ceremony. Because when you say, I do, you've given up a lot of rights. And that's what Paul's point is in 1 Corinthians 7. And that's also his point going back to 2 Timothy 2, where he uses the analogy of war. And he says there in, in verse, on page 1853, in verse 3, Endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. You know, my wife and I, with uh, our grandson who lives uh, there with us, we watched Ken Burns' The War, which is an amazing documentary of World War II. And let's see, we have here a veteran of World War II. Joe? Miss Nora Jean, isn't Joe? And Jim? Both of you all? No. No, Joe's a veteran of World War II. Jim was in the military, but not in World War II. So... Wow, think about it. That was tough. That was a terrible war to be in. Whichever theater you were in, whether the Pacific or the European. Think about the hardship of war. You know, I heard a joke one time about a boy who said he was tired of having to do everything his parents told him to do, when they told him to do it, so he's going to go join the army. 
endure hardship, he says, with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Being a soldier is tough. It's hard. You have to live in a way that you're deprived of the normal comforts of life and in an extraordinary way, in an extraordinary way. Terrible conditions. Think of World War I. Think of what the Germans used. Mustard gas burned out people's lungs. Think of the Japanese with their religion of Shinto nationalism where the emperor was, a, was the son of the sun god and nobody else counted for anything. Their value was lighter than a feather and therefore they committed mass suicide. They refused to be taken. That's why it cost so many thousands of allied soldiers finally to take Okinawa. And that's why President Truman decided that the Enola Gay would drop the first weapon of mass destruction in human history. But it ended the war. War is hard. Being a soldier is hard. It's terrible. Not being able to see your loved ones. Letters not even to be even able to be delivered. Being captured. If you were going to be captured, it was far better to be captured by the Germans than it was to be captured by the Japanese. Because for the Japanese, only scum and cowards surrendered. The duty of a Japanese soldier was to die fighting. Instead of surrendering, the commander would take his knife and would disembowel himself. And so anyone who surrendered was to be treated worse than a dog. Hardship as a soldier. But what is, what is our kingdom? What is the soldier, what is the military that we are called to be in? Notice what he says. He says, like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And then he says, which fits in in verse 4 with what we read in 1 Corinthians 7, no one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs in order that he may please his commanding officer. What is he really getting at? Well, first of all, turn with me, if you will, to the book of John, Gospel of John, where Jesus is standing before Pilate, where Jesus is standing before Pilate. And, and listen to what he says as Pilate is quizzing him. 1683, uh, John chapter 18 and verse 33. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Now notice Jesus' answer. Is that your own idea? Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? I want you to see something in how Jesus deals with political leaders. He's not disrespectful, but neither is he enamored or in awe of them. He's not afraid. I don't know about you or me, but knowing he was the representative of Tiberius Caesar and that he had the power of life and death over me and could have me tortured, I would have probably 
been pretty afraid. Do you see in Jesus' answer in verse 34, there's absolutely no fear? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked? Or did others talk to you about me? Look at Pilate. And you see the contempt. And this contempt in verse 35 is a contempt that goes back to the time of Abraham. A contempt for the Jews. Am I a Jew? Asked Pilate. You know, this was not a good place to have an assignment by the Roman Senate. Not a good place. People have persecuted the Jewish people throughout history. Am I a Jew? Says Pilate. You can hear the sneer in his voice. Go back to the book of Esther and how Haman wanted to wipe out every last man, woman, and child who was Jewish. Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Now look at what Jesus says in verse 36. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You're a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you're right in saying I'm a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came in the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And just hear the cynicism in Pilate's response. What is truth? What is truth? Pilate was a politician. Pilate was a politician. What is truth? Anyone who knows very much about politics knows that politics is not about truth. In fact, politics is about concealing as much as possible in order to get what you want. How different that is from the kingdom of Jesus. Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom that's open and transparent where people confess their sins one to another, where Christians display their weakness and say, brothers and sisters, pray for me, even as I ask you today. Pray for this palsy to go away. That is the place of the kingdom of Christ. Transparency, weakness, vulnerability, sharing needs and pleading for help one with another. But in the kingdom of politics, the kingdoms of this world, it's about deception. Have you reflected on things? You know, I was always fascinated by politics because I remember my father bought the second television in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina when I was a little boy. It was black and white and with a giant antenna on the roof we could pick up a lot of snow. But by 1954, the television was pretty clear. And I sat and watched both the Republican and the Democratic conventions on television with my dad. And ever since then, I've been fascinated by politics. And when I was worrying about my son, because he was feeling his oats as a just getting ready to go into puberty young male... I kept praying, Lord, show me what will turn him on and excite him and give him a purpose and mission in life. And I found out. 
He was interested in politics. Politics is a very interesting game. And because he was interested in it, I remember in the presidential race, presidential race, not e-race, the presidential race in 1992, I discovered that he was interested, and so he and I went both to the Democratic and Republican headquarters in Alexandria to volunteer his services, and we were being transparent. We were going to say, my son is interested in politics. He wants to observe, and he will serve. He will do things for you. Ask him what you want him to do. And I discovered then and there why George W. Bush, George Herbert Walker Bush lost. He presumed he was going to win by a landslide. They didn't even bother opening a headquarters that summer. That's amazing. And so the only ones who had a headquarters were the Democrats. So my son became very involved. And I learned a lot. Because of his involvement, I had the head of the... uh, of the Democratic uh, Party for the parish, that's counties in Louisiana, asked me if I would help him. And I said, well, if you get my boy involved, I'll help you behind the scenes. So I wrote speeches for him. He never did what I told him to do. You know what I told him to do? I said, here are your talking points, Jerry. I laid out five talking points. And I said, no matter what they ask you, Always come back to these talking points. Don't ever answer a question without coming back to these talking points. And Jerry didn't do it. And Jerry came in sixth in a field of six candidates. Because politics is the art of deception. How could you do that, Bob? Well, I wanted to see my son really know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. And I wanted to form a relationship with him. But I learned a lot. Through that, we got invited to a really big event. And we were invited to a country club near Lafayette, Louisiana. And that country club, the Montreal, had the most amazing feed you've ever seen. They had fresh oysters, fresh shrimp, prime rib. You name it, it was there and they had an open bar. It was about... It was about 1 o'clock in the afternoon, and we went there. And here were all the high rollers of the Democratic Party. There were our senators, congressmen, and we got to enjoy that good food. Four hours later, we went to another feed. That was held at a camp, a state park. And all of the Democratic sheriffs of Louisiana, I think there were 63 of them, at that time, because I think Louisiana sheriffs still are all Democrats. And so they had a feed, and they brought the best cooks that they had out of their prisons. And so each sheriff brought a team of convicts and fixed a fabulous meal. And so there it was. There was free beer, no open bar, free beer, free soda pop, free water, and really good gumbo and and couchon de lait and uh, etouffee 
and all those other good South Louisiana things. And we're in there. Why are you going on this long story? I want to illustrate something. Politics is the art of deception. So our United States Senator, who had just been at the Montreal four hours before, where we had all these goodies, he gets up to speak. And he said, Man, he said, Democrats really know how to pass a good time. He said, look at this. This, all this good food, the jambalaya, everything, it's all delicious. He said, if this were a Republican meeting, and then he described the event we'd all been at four hours before. <laughs> and that's when I learned, Chef. That's when I learned that there ain't no difference between the two parties. What do you say? That's when I learned. There's not any real difference in the two parties. It's the rich, the super rich, that control both parties. And we need never forget that. Politics is the art of deception. Think about it. He was deceiving those people. He was deceiving them. Later, my son actually uh, served uh, for one semester uh, as an aide to him in Washington, D.C. He told me something about that. Do you think that senators and congressmen write bills? Who wrote Obamacare? Insurance companies. That's why your cost of health care went way up. Who writes your bills? It's the lobbyists that write the bills. And so that U.S. senator, as soon as he stepped down being a U.S. senator, became a lobbyist. Because that's where the money is. Politics is the art of deception. Now, thinking of our text, my kingdom. Jesus' kingdom is radically different than the kingdoms of this world. And as you go to polls on Tuesday, I encourage you to vote. As you go to the polls on Tuesday, do it prayerfully. But remember this. Politics is the art of deception. And at the top, very powerful people control things. But what I want us to understand is this. The real issue is always the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what counts. Turn with me lastly to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We are at war. And he says there on page 1804, 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 3, Though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. How does the world wage war? Do people ever cheat in elections? Are you kidding me? I'm from Louisiana. At least I have been since 1975. Do people ever stuff ballot boxes? Are you kidding me? Has there ever been an election in this country ever where every vote was counted and there was no fraud? Of course not. What do we do? What do we do? Should you vote? Of course you should vote. 
But you've got to vote with one thing in mind. What matters most? What matters most is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't ever lose your soul in the interest of worldly conquest. Because when you get it, it ain't worth having. He says, for though we live in the world, verse 3, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. There's a spiritual kingdom. The spiritual kingdom does affect the kingdoms of this world. And our prayer ought to be that every nation everywhere submits to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that before Christ returns, the nations are one to Christ. But it's up to God the Father to determine what that victory really looks like. I would rather live in the United States than any other country I know of. I can gripe with the best of them about what's going on. But I'll say this, in the final analysis, what counts more this Tuesday than your voting physically at a poll, as I always like to do. It is to vote on your knees before Christ and plead with him. How should God direct this election? I don't know. You say, but Bob, surely you know. We only have a short supply of diesel fuel. The Mississippi River is drying up. We have this and we have that. We have this problem and that problem. We have the friends of powerful people making billions of dollars by selling military supplies for this war in the Ukraine. Do you ever want to wonder what war's really about most of the time? It's about the friends of politicians making billions of dollars off of arms sales. Wouldn't you like to see some of that fix the roads? Fix health care, fix this, fix that. I don't know. All I'm saying to you is this, that God will sacrifice anything in your life and mine to advance his kingdom in our hearts and through us into the lives of others. I love America. I pray that Americans, America can still remain free. But if we are to remain free, we cannot turn our back on the moral law of God. And when you vote, you have to think of the moral law of God as a factor. As I think of politics, I triangulate between three values. One, the moral law of God. I cannot vote for somebody who is openly opposed to God's moral law. How can I possibly vote for somebody who advocates wickedness as defined by the Bible. Secondly, I believe in freedom and liberty. And I believe that the best economic system is that which is the little fellow in business for himself. What we call petty capitalism. 
Because when you get into a multinational corporation, there's not a lot of difference between it and some tyrannical government. They don't care about people. But the little fellow who opens a business, has employees, provides for his employees, gives them work, knows their families, supports them. I believe in laissez-faire capitalism tempered by two things. The law of God and care for the poor. Because if we don't take care of people who cannot take care of themselves, God will never take care of us. So an ideal political system, if I were dictator of the world, would, would first of all recognize the moral law of God, would secondly recognize that freedom, liberty, libertarianism, in the sense of allowing the fellow to run his business as freely as he possibly can while remembering God's law on the one hand and while considering the needs of the poor on the other, that's the ideal system, triangulating between those values. That's how I try to vote. I recommend it to you because I can defend each of those three things from the Bible. But pray and beg God to have mercy on our country and remember that this world is not your home. That crowns and thrones may perish, kingdoms rise and wane, but the church, that's what really counts. And at the end of the day, I remember talking to my son about politics, and I said, son, you can go into politics and that's good, but never in a political campaign win it by being unable to meet your opponent face to face in a Christian embrace and to pray for him and his accepting your prayers as somebody who's a man of integrity. And let me tell you, the higher you get in political office, the more corrupting it is. The more corrupting it is. It's hard to keep your soul and run for office. So pray for your political leaders whether at the smallest level or the highest. And may God bless America. May we pray. Lord, we pray that we would be good soldiers of the Lord Jesus Christ, not entangling ourselves in this world in such a way that we're bogged down, that at the end of the day, if we cannot be loved and trusted by our democratic neighbor, what have we accomplished? At the end of the day, if we cannot be loved and trusted by our Republican neighbor, what have we accomplished? Lord, give us to live so freely in this world, unentangled by the things that snare us, pull us down and keep us from being free, that we may always, always be able to share our faith without embarrassment to people who disagree with us, but who know that we love them. And Lord, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who said, My kingdom is not of this world, else would my disciples fight. Lord, I thank you for Jesus who told his disciples to get a sword. And yet when it came time to using those swords, he told them to put them away. Because he had a mission. And his mission was to suffer and to die on the cross in our place and to take our sins on himself. Lord, as we remember 
The victory of Christ over, over death and hell and sin and Satan may remember it as a victory that was won by losing, that was gained by giving up. Lord, bless us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.